Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Welcome to part three of the programs I'm doing on Anselm of Canterbury. Anselm, I think, is a key figure, and this is obvious from the amount of time I'm spending with him, that he, I'm going to describe in this lecture as the father of scholasticism. That is, he's bringing together Greek thought and integrating it into Christian thought and is going to bring it right into the heart of the atonement theory called divine satisfaction that then is integrating. And what I'm claiming throughout these talks is that Anselm is integrating his philosophical thinking, the cosmological argument of the monologion and the ontological argument of the proslogion. He's integrating this form of thought into his doctrine of why a God-man, that is, what is the point of Christianity? And unfortunately, I believe that Anselm then has carried the day. But I think he's done it in a way that people are not completely aware of the trick that he's pulled off, and maybe that's a trivialization because the trick is in fact inclusive of what I'm claiming about Anselm. Why is he so important? Why do we need to go into the details of his thinking to the degree that I am? Because, first of all, I think he's giving us an insight into human psychology. That is, that there is a kind of depth psychology that he's getting at, the experience that is going to be produced, you know, for the monks at Beck, that it is a kind of recognition of the mystical, ecstatic experience that exactly he's really describing in and through his reason, where reason takes you in terms of mysticism, and so he is a rational mystic. So already we've brought together this notion that rationalism, as we have it in the West, and mysticism, as we have it, are not in fact over and against one another, but conjoined at the hip. And I think we can begin to take this apart in Anselm of Canterbury, that is, he's saying through his argument that what is taking place in a mystical experience is to arrive at the self. This is Derrida's picture, you know, his his grand critique of Western thought. And even when I say Western, I always, you know, he himself has said, well, wait a minute, is it just that? And I think he's probably right that in some way that what Anselm is doing with language, what's taking place with Descartes, what's taking place in the Western philosophical tradition, is simply an articulation of what people are always doing uh, in religion, in philosophy. That is, the human project is in some way captured in what we're doing, and, and of course the illegitimacy of that project, I hope, is, is understood. What I would also say is that Anselm is taking us to the same place that Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel would take us. And many people recognize that in Hegel... Here is the end of the Western philosophical tradition that Hegel takes reason and it shows it's unreasonable. That is, for Hegel, that that's the whole point. It takes us 
to God himself, but through a process that becomes, in Hegel's own language, contradictory. I believe we're already there in Anselm. It's the same place that we're going to come to, you know, the very language of nothingness. Uh, and where I'll begin then with the what is actually taking place is in a way quite simple. There is, and, and Hegel sees this too, they're both going to recognize that what's taking place is a reflection of language upon itself, but both of them have so reified language, they've imagined that this reflection of language, you know, when Hegel will write a long discourse on the word this, and that this is in some way a reflection back on language, that to have a this, you have to have a not this. And, but, of course, what he's saying about this is that this is the truth about the self. Anselm's doing the same thing. He's going to recognize. Actually, Gonalo, who, of course, in this case, a real person, often Anselm's opponents, are, he's made them up. But Gonalo actually writes an objection and, and notes that the word something is playing the same role that it's uh, in the ontological argument. I'll come back to that. But this reflexivity that is there in language that allows us to look upon, you know, see the human mind in Anselm's picture as a kind of mirror, I'm claiming that this is precisely where Hegel takes us. And, of course, Hegel is, Zizek's going to refer to Hegel as, you know, that he's doing Lacanian psychoanalysis, that, or he is, the, in Lacan's phrase, the most sublime of hysterics. That is, before Lacan, that here is a, one of the adept psychology. Yeah, we're, we're really getting into the depths of human interiority, and, and we are going to land nowhere and nothing. But I just presume that this nothingness should not be reified, as it is in both Hegel and in Anselm, as an absolute something. So, Anselm is the father of scholasticism, He's drawing together this form of thought, but he is then also the father of the doctrine of divine satisfaction. He's going to, in the Western theological tradition, he's going to give us an explanation for the cross of Christ that just wins the day. That actually, I think it ends with penal substitution by John Calvin, is a continuation of this form of thought. There's often a a difference, a differentiation made between penal substitution and what Anselm is doing, and I think that is legitimate. There, there is a, a legitimate difference, but in, in the end, I don't think that there is enough of a difference to say that they're really uh, doing a, anything different. I'll, I'll come back to that too. So, in Anselm, I think he is a key figure. He's an important figure for purposes of theology running down the illegitimacy of what has become the predominant doctrine of atonement. I think he's important just for, in, in terms of philosophy, he's going to give us this argument, the ontological argument, that is going to be the foundation of natural theology, that is, the other arguments, and I believe Kant is correct here, the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, are ultimately dependent on the ontological argument. Now, I'm not saying that they have to be, and I think there are 
arguments to be made, that there is a role to be had for natural theology. But if you don't recognize what Kant is saying about the primary role of the ontological argument in natural theology, then you're going to miss the, the sense in which the, all of this then can become what is called an ontotheology, or the idea that we can attain God in and through natural reason itself. This is precisely what Anselm is claiming, that natural reason, or the reason that we have, is capable to attain to God. Now, the, the proviso that I need to add there is, but even Anselm, of course, is going to say, yes, but we need Christ to do that. But, of course, what he means by Christ is not the Christ that we encounter in the Bible, not the historical Jesus, but, in fact, the Christ that is the Logos that he's going to make parallel to the, the word of man, that the two things are fused. So he's important theologically, he's important psychoanalytically, he's getting at a depth theology, he's important philosophically. He's mistaken, he's wrong, but he's wrong in the characteristic fashion that thought always goes wrong. That he, in this sense, I think is much a much more important figure than Rene Descartes, and, and Descartes is just continuing, I think, in an Anselmian tradition that he's giving us. The, you know, Descartes is pictured as the father of modernity. The modernity, I'm afraid, is not the, the huge departure that is often portrayed as, because Anselm of Canterbury, of course, is, is certainly not within that time frame. I hope this is justification for spending the, the, the amount of time that I am with Anselm. I think he is a key figure, and that by examining him in the way that we are, that we can arrive at then the problem of Western philosophical tradition, the problem that in fact develops in theology in terms not just of the doctrine of atonement or atonement theories, once you get at the problem of Anselm, then you're going to see the problem in a natural theology, as it's often portrayed in, in, in a kind of ontotheology. I think that in Anselm of Canterbury, and this is Gregory Schufrader's point, he equates Heidegger, Martin Heidegger, as the last rational mystic, and Anselm as the first rational mystic, that here are bracketed then the beginning and end of this form of thought, that, of course, uh, for me, Heidegger is the, an end point, uh, this, the pure evil of the man. His support of Adolf Hitler, I'm presuming, is not simply a mistake we can overlook, but I, my point would be, no, Martin Heidegger is being true to his philosophy in his national socialism. There is something inherently evil in what Heidegger is doing, not just in his ethics and social life, but in his philosophy. I think it's already there in Anselm. And of course, Heidegger is uh, attuned to, he's trained in this form of thought, that he's really carrying out a kind of understanding in his, in his Catholic education that is a continuation in his philosophy of what he's encountering in scholasticism. Let's begin, and I, let me start where I ended last time. And I need to start here because with the end of the ontological argument, because my claim is that what he's just done with the ontological argument is 
continued then with Curtis Homo, why a God-man, that it's the same project. It is the same caving in on itself. It's the what I've called a, a kind of reflexive argument, and this is Gondola's point, his objection to the argument, concerns the degree to which in something than which nothing greater can be thought. He's saying, well, what is the content of this something? In the phrase, which is Anselm's name for God, Something is simply takes on a meaning as the opposite over and against nothing. It only has reference to the nothing or to the sentence itself. It doesn't refer to any definite thing. And yet this is the key word. The reflexivity of this pronoun something only becomes clear in discourse referring to the discourse itself. The immediate referent of the something in the statement, nothing greater can be thought, the something is not referring to anything. It's not referring to any existing thing because existing things are not the greatest something. Even in the formulation of the statement, where nothing does not appear, it's already implicit in the something because the only way something means the only way it gains meaning is over and against all existing things, which are the marker of nothing. In other words, Anselm has succeeded in building on his ontological reversal through his formula, which makes something over and against the nothing inclusive of all existing things, but not referring to anything. Specifically, he's given us a, this thought or formula in which we cannot think anything other than the formula itself. That's the point of the formula. That was where I started. He's backed us into a corner in which we only have this thought and nothing else. The next phrase in the formula, then which nothing greater, as Anselm will point out to Gonolo, does not refer to any existing greater thing among ordinary existence. The formula only works Anselm insists, if it is understood, it was sufficient that I first show that I, it was understood and existed in the mind some way or other. So this was back, you know, takes us clear back to the monologion, that his comparison of differences between you know, existing things, a, a fast horse, a slow horse, that ultimately you get to an absolute difference in which you pass out of the world, you pass out of the ontological argument that he's making in the cosmological argument, you pass the ontological divide, you're now working beyond the world itself. Which I hope the nonsense of what I'm saying strikes you, because uh, we're in the realm of ethereal thought. I mean, it, it, it is an, a realm in which nothing and Anselm will recognize this. Hegel will recognize this. Heidegger will recognize this. They're all going to take this nothing as an essence itself. This is Lacan's point, that the nothing of the death drive, you know, nothingness taken as something, this is Paul's definition of idolatry. This is the human predicament. And that, again, I think that to articulate it in the way that Anselm has done is an exposure of the idolatrous nature of his argument, the idolatrous nature of the foundationalism 
that he's laid that is precisely not the foundation laid in Christ. Thought in the formula has ontological priority over ordinary existence. A thought that has already thought the non-existence of all things except this thought itself and the necessary reality it apprehends has already confirmed its own ontological status as that of its object. That is, this is an absolute thought, and the thinker is carried across an ontological divide. This thought, like its object, is a necessary thought that cannot not be thought. And Anselm is equating that, this necessity, with divinity. Thought takes the argument as it exists in the, the monologion out of the factual realm of actually existing things and shifts it to a purely logical realm. So when we start Curtis Homo, that's where we're at. We're within human interiority. We're within human will and thinking and reason. It's, it's a thought Anselm himself will admit that does not thank God, rather it isolates and cuts off the normal avenues of thought so that one is backed into this thought because there is nothing else to think. The doubtable existence of, you know, kind of existence. This is what Descartes doing. Same thing, everything that can be doubted. And Descartes just, in a sense, is reducing Anselm's formula that the one thing that cannot be doubted is thought itself. Well, we already have that in Anselm of Canterbury. The doubtable kind of existence is always of the factual sort. And it's precisely this factual or normal avenue of thought that the formula eliminates, that it's taken us out of the world. And Anselm has given us the equivalent, then, of a mathematical formula for God. You know, this is Descartes' love of mathematics that uh, he imagines in his own meditations, that mathematics is the key, it is the model for science. But it is just as tautologous and system-bound as mathematics. Yes, mathematics works within the closed system of the symbolic world. One who understands cannot doubt that the sum of 1 plus 1 equals 2. But the formula only works if one is acquainted with the abstract significations and understands the rules of the game in a base 10 system in other words, there's all these rules that are laid out implicit. This is Wittgenstein's point, that you're playing a game here, and the game is dependent upon the rules of language, the, the laws of grammar. It's true of mathematics itself. That's the significance in uh, the math itself. Or There is no set theory that is all-encompassing. So, Gonalo's objection, I can doubt the existence of myself, which I know to exist. This is uh, precisely Descartes' point. Even if none of these those things exist can be thought understood not to exist, all, however, can be thought, of, thought as not existing, save that which exists to a supreme degree. So the, the mathematical formula, as Anselm gives it, and the way that he translates this into thought, is to equate the thought in God that, you know, Gonel's objection, uh, I can doubt the existence of myself, which I know to exist, 
Descartes is going to hit upon that. Anselm admits that. But of course the thing is the thought that Anselm has. That cannot be doubted. Only that being in which there is neither beginning nor end nor conjunction of parts and that thought does not discern save as a whole in every place and at every time can that be thought as not existing. You have this undoubtable thought and this undoubt you are attached then. You identify with this undoubtable thought. God and thought only converge in the necessity of rational insight. This is where he's going to take the Curtis homo that with this rational insight that he's doing, that he has in the ontological argument, is enabled, he's going to claim, through the death of Christ. Thought opens up an experience of the divine through an act of the will. What is sin? Sin is a failure of the will. What is salvation? It's to will rightly, to remember rightly. So the divine that even exceeds or goes beyond the existence of self is identified with the thought. The thought can think beyond one's own death, mortality, or finitude. We've arrived at the innate immortality of the soul through this thought. This is the whole point of Plato, that you need to posit an innately immortal soul for Platonic thought to work, that it works on that basis. Well, Anselm has just proven what he needed to begin with, the something that one attains in and through the ontological vision is no more than a voicing of what in essence cannot appear in language, where a word without content, without sound, is reified, and the will to get at this word falls to willing no determinate object other than its own willing, this could be described as the will to be in the face of mortality. This is Descartes' willing. This is Descartes, of course, was himself gripped by a fear of death. In his meditations, in some way, he imagines that his thought and his science is delivering from death. Well, in a sense, this is the whole point that we've reified thought, reified the self, escaped mortality, escaped death, posited an innately immortal soul, and this is salvation in this system that is precisely not Christian salvation, but unfortunately has been in, equated with Christian salvation, uh, the power of human thought to deliver us. So in tracing the rise and fall of the various arguments, what is often not taken into account is the context which would make the arguments appear more plausible. You know, this argument is for Anselm's contemporaries and for uh, modernists in modernity, from Anselm to Aquinas to Descartes, there is a shift, though, from the ontological to the cosmological and then back to the ontological argument that traces sociological, philosophical, theological shifts. There's a recognition then, you know, the role of language in this that is there in Hegel. This is Nietzsche's point that, well, you're actually, all you have is language. And this gets into the whole discussion of the nature of human reality. Is it 
is why Zizek and Lacan posit a radical evil, because what they need is to reify nothingness, creation from nothing, they really is not something God does, it's something man does, that we create our own personality out of the nothingness of human thought and language. They're just acknowledging in a straightforward fashion. I mean, for them, this is the human disease, the human sickness. This is the death drive that we formulated human personality out of a kind of deception, out of nothingness itself. And what you would posit with the death drive is that this is the real. This is ultimate reality. I believe in the end, this is why Lacan and Zizek are going to refer to what Freud calls the id as the real. You can read Lacan especially in one of two ways. You know, is he saying that all of reality is dependent upon this understanding? I think with Zizek, he's, he's acknowledging what this amounts to. He's arrived at nothing, and yet we have to have this nothing. Which he also, he's openly going to call it a deception as it works in human personality. But he's going to say we have to have this deception for the system to work. Now I'll unfold this a bit more and come directly then to Curtis Home. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.